right, so welcome to the inaugural episode of the University Writing Program podcast for fall 2016. This is exciting. This is our first new episode of this academic year. Um, we're changing the format a little bit this time around, so we've got a new format before it was kind of one-on-one conversations. Now we're doing more of a group podcast, and so we brought in some really amazing and exciting guests to talk today about um, linguistic and cultural diversity in our writing classrooms. Um, so the first person that we've got here is Deborati Dutta. Um, she is a senior lecturer in the university writing program, cultural commuter, frequently shuffling between two continents, three languages, multiple homes, and worldviews. Her recent research centers around decolonized paradigms of writing, education, institutional rhetorics of diversity, and internationalization, translingual and transnational theories of genre. Um, she's an amateur textile collector, that's pretty cool, and loves to learn about local folk and indigenous con- um, conceptions of nutrition and wellness. Currently reading Ken Robinson's Creative Schools and taking an online course in design thinking. Deva, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, We've also got Rebecca Agosta. Um, She is the Associate Director of the Writing Resources Center, Um, relatively new to UNC Charlotte's writing program uh, in her fourth year here. She's been blogging since 2011 about plus-size fashion and body activist spaces, activist spaces, um, which is where she's learned a lot about communities through, um, uh, learned a lot about diverse communities through the different writing uh, places that she exists in. Um, she's learned a lot about privilege, how people use writing to gain agency and cultural change. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. That's amazing. Um, Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Linda Hoffman. Um, <clears throat> Linda grew up in a linguistically and culturally diverse county outside of New York in the 60s and 70s. That sounds so cool. We'd love to hear more about that. And she's also taught the international sections of first-year writing at UNC Charlotte for the last 10 years, going all the way back um, to two, the, two, the year 2000. So an amazing panel of guests today. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm Justin Carey. Um, I'm a lecturer in the university writing program, and I'll just be kind of guiding us through our discussion today. So thank you all so much for thank, being here. Thank, thank you. you. We'd like thank to you, be Justin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no problem. Um, before we get into anything, quick news that we should talk about. Real quick, this amazing article that was just featured on the Inside UNC Charlotte homepage about our new 1104 hybrid course model. Um, anybody want to comment on that? I haven't taught it yet, so I am interested to hear about those that are <laughs> teaching it. This was really exciting for us. It was like three years of work, so many different people, so many different phases, and we're just happy to see it um, on the university homepage because there are so many things we do that remain completely invisible to the public eye and so we're just glad that the project is on its way. The course is now being taught in multiple sections and we've learned so much from the project. Yeah, it's a a really amazing article and it's so exciting to see that, to see the work that we've all been working so hard on for the last few years kind of featured in that way, you know. It just starts off by saying writing is foundational to the overall success of all UNC Charlotte students. So when faculty in the university writing program started discussing changes to the first year writing curriculum, it was a major undertaking. And it goes on from there to tell us how awesome they are. Um, It's it's okay, I'll have it. Um, We're just awesome folks. We know. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty sweet. We're pretty sweet. I just want to point that out. That's pretty a nice little piece of news there that we can kind of share. If you want to check that out, you can find it on inside.uncc.edu. All right, so that brings us to kind of the task at hand, which is opening up a discussion around linguistic and cultural diversity in our writing courses, Um, something that I think we should definitely be talking about, something that's extremely important, and... Uh, I'm just going to kind of open up the floor to anyone who would like to just chat and share about any of their experiences um, teaching or dealing with, working with um, students of linguistic and cultural diverse populations. 
Would you like to start, Oh, sure. I guess I can start. Um, I, it's been interesting for me because I have been teaching the international sections under the, quote, old curriculum uh, for a number of years, as, as Justin mentioned in the intro, since about 2000. Um, here at UNCC, and so the model was we had um, sections of 1101 that were um, designed to be half international students and half domestic, and then at the same time we had a support class that was for called 1100 that was just for students um, who were international who wanted that extra support to help them with their 1101 um, work. And so um, it's been interesting for me to kind of see the transition. I guess that would be you know, the so-called contained model that we had for a long time of sort of um, uh, keeping students who had linguistic um, challenges um, in their own setting where they would re receive extra support. And so now we're kind of moving away from that model. But I, I have to say, I always, I just always loved teaching those sections. And I understand that um, it's time to think about them differently. But I've just always loved the diversity that we've had at UNCC. And and it's been a wonderful teaching those classes for so many years. Yeah, and Linda has been such a remarkable resource in the community. Around 2011, Tony Scott, when he was the director of our first year writing program, um, we started talking about what was happening in these international sections, and we realized that um, we didn't um, that the curriculum, the larger curriculum, had changed, and yet. Um, what was happening in the international curriculum did not quite align with larger changes within the field and um, in our own curriculum. So we started to move away from the remedial deficit model of education and trying to think about how do we build in and recognize these linguistically and um, culturally diverse students. And we, one of the things that you know we talked about often is this idea that um, this sharp distinction between what we called American students and international students and how problematic it was. Um, because many of our American students are multilingual users of um, English and they speak multiple languages even though they are American um, citizens. As opposed to international students, they can also be um, English speakers in non-anglophone countries. So we started thinking about brands and how students were being branded and pushed into certain classes and how that was problematic. And that led to this whole rich conversation about how all language classrooms, all writing classrooms are diverse. You just have to find a way of recognizing that diversity and responding to that with curricular shifts, shifts in assessment practices. And so we've been having this long, rich conversation with Linda, with Rebecca, who's taught the international section for so many years now. Yeah, and I think um, the students are picking up on that too. We've seen a change in how they perceive the international section of 1101. Um, and part of that is the consideration of who are they and what would best serve them. Um, and some of them are choosing not to go into the international section and, and what are their perceptions of that class. Perhaps it is still thinking, oh, that might be a remedial class. Um, and like Deba said, I taught uh, International 1101 last year for the first time. I'm also teaching it this semester. And a good number of my domestic students are also um, speakers of multiple languages. And so it's not quite the setup that maybe was imagined whenever we first started this kind of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to go back to something that Linda said earlier of sort of the, the, I guess you could call it a traditional model of almost siloing 
international students. I think this this abstract, I'd just like to read this, if, you, if you're okay with that, to kind of kick off more discussion. Um, Marilyn Cochran-Smith from University of Pennsylvania has this article, Colorblindness and basket making are not the answers, confronting the dilemmas of race, culture, and language diversity in teacher education. And the abstract for this kind of speaks to this. It says, although the American educational system is dysfunctional for large numbers of children who are not part of the racial and language mainstream, there are no universal strategies for teaching children who are culturally and linguistically different from one another, from their teachers, or from students whose interests are already well served by the system. Drawing on the inquiries of student teachers working in urban elementary schools, I argue that we need to go beyond colorblindness and basket making as responses to cultural diversity. Instead, I propose that we need generative ways for student teachers and teacher educators to reconsider their assumptions, understand the values and practices of families and cultures different from their own, and construct pedagogy that not only takes these into account in locally appropriate ways, but also makes issues of diversity an explicit part of the curriculum. And I think that last sentence is really key because it's that idea of making this discussion an explicit part of the curriculum. Um, it kind of reminds me of accessibility issues. It's the same thing, like, at, like accessibility becoming an add-on. Right, like doing uh, alternate text for images as like an add-on thing that's a pain to do, and a new way to think about that is to think about it like a rhetorical move. You know, you're using accessibility rhetorically. It might be the same move here. How can we incorporate this stuff, diversity of linguistics and culture, into our curriculum explicitly, not as an add-on? Right. So that kind of speaks to some of the points that you guys were just making. Um, <clears throat> And we have to go back to this idea of inclusivity because it can be vastly misunderstood. Um, mm -hmm. For example, inclusion um, doesn't change the status quo of things. Uh, you can actually have a culturally diverse or linguistically diverse materials. But even in inclusion, the main dialect, standard American, can still be privileged. So we have to really understand how we are privileging and what we are privileging in our own classroom. So inclusion by itself, um, doesn't do much. We have to think about, you know, equity. We have to think about social justice. And sometimes the word diversity um, gets co-opted by neoliberal agendas. And so we should really think about, you know, like, uh, what is it that we're doing in classroom just because I have Chimamanda Adichie in my classroom? Right. Just because I have Sashi Tharoor in my classroom doesn't mean that my students um, are really learning about what it is to be a language learner, what is it to be able to you know, speak in multiple languages, and how that fluency mm -hmm. is different from monolingual assumptions about fluency. So that's just something that we need to think about, that diversity, diverse curriculum, is not just enough. We also need to think about decolonization. Mm -hmm. I think I, I see this in my, I see myself sort of failing at this quite often in a lot of different ways, not just in this sort of discussion around diversity and cultural and linguistic diversity, but like I tend to be very like, in materials that I produce for my class, they're very tied into stuff that I already like and know, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I constantly have to check myself with that. Like, I'll bring in a, a Anita Circassian video because I love her work on gaming. And, like, not everyone's interested in that. Not everyone knows about that. Not a, I'll make references to, you know, TV shows that I grew up with or something, and especially now that I'm, like, getting older. Um, nobody knows what I'm talking about. And so that's, like, a little microcosmic way of thinking about what we're doing here because I do that all the time, and I, I often I try. I want to provide materials that are more inclusive, going back to that, that loaded word, but um, I, I don't think I do a good job of that. And, and if I'm not doing a good job of including like pop culture materials that aren't inclusive, I can't imagine how poor of a job I'm doing providing culturally diverse materials. Like, pretty bad, I'm sure. 
I think it's a challenge for all of us. Uh, we are uh, constrained by the limits of our own knowledge, by the limits of what we like, by the limits of what we're comfortable with. And this is something that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the other struggle um, I often face is my multiple identities as a person. Like on the other hand, I'm translingual. I belong to a different part of the world and then there are those visual markers. Um, the moment I speak, you can hear my accent, you immediately position me as an outsider. But then there are other in institutional markers that also position me as an inst insider. Like I'm a writing teacher, I'm supposed to teach students mainstream academic discourse. And I move between these very conflicting ideologies to find a place for myself that yes, I can teach them but alternative rhetorics multiple discourses, discourses that are used in different parts of the world. But I'm also painfully aware of the fact that our students will graduate from their writing classes and they'll go to engineering and sociology and geology. And there they'll be writing in privileged discourses. Mm -hmm. so, so I struggle with, what am I really doing? Am I ill-serving my students by helping them compose in alternative rhetorics and discourses? So that's the struggles that I have to go through. Well, I think that heightened awareness is where it can serve them in multiple types of ways. Um, you know, in a critical stance, what is being privileged and how can they recognize that within a certain community or context? Um, and they can be critical of what's being privileged. They can pick it apart. They can wonder about what's happening and what's happening to the people that are using it um, and who's controlling it and, and benefiting from it and who's not and what it means to those people that are not. And they can still use those same kind of skills of, you know, observing writing, observing communication, and figuring out what are the rules and what's privileged, and use that in their own um, disciplines in perhaps a way that will then give them a slight maybe amount of agency in deciding in what ways they're going to adhere and or bend or push back. You know, one thing I just think was so interesting when I started reading this article that you just referenced, Justin, is I thought it was a contemporary, like it had just been written. Yeah. And of course, it's from 1995. Mm -hmm. So I guess my point, I just want to bring up how this is just ongoing. You know, this has been, it, it's, it's, I thought this could have been just written, Absolutely. you know, and it, this is just ongoing um, issues in the world of, of um, teaching in the reality of uh the world now, and and uh, it's been it, it's not a, there are no easy solutions. I love the fact that you brought it up that this was like composed twenty one years ago, and I'm immediately thinking like when I talk about monolingual ideologies of writing to American audiences and my peers, I always sense that I don't want my audience to think that I'm blaming them because I see the same monolingual ideologies prevalent in very multilingual societies, like in the university that I was educated in, even though we were mostly multilingual and, and spoke at the very least three or four languages on a day-to-day -day basis, our writing, our academic work was composed using monolingual ideologies of language. And so there was a linguistic class I took where we had to transcribe words phonetically using the Queen's English. And what an experience it was. Here's this Indian speaker who speaks a privileged Anglo-Indian accent, but who still speaks an Anglo-Indian accent, being asked to phonetically transcribe how the British Queen would be pronouncing words. And it was a great translingual experience, but you see that monolingual mm. ideology and the idea of the native speaker pri being privileged in that kind of writing activity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 
it, it's such an interesting and, and, and fascinating question in this field of, of writing studies, right? Because of exactly that. Like, is there, like, how do we, how, how do, we do assessment, right? Even no matter what we think about or say about assessment, in the back of our head, there's still some kind of standard that we're putting everything up against, mm -hmm. right? Like, no matter what we say or do, we're still doing that. Um, and, and so how do we do that? Like, how do we reconcile those two things? Like, I think that's a really, for me, that's a really fascinating question of, like, how do we allow space for students who, who aren't part of this sort of monocentric language system to express themselves, to create things, and be assessed and, and kind of looked at in the same way? Or, or, or maybe that's part of the problem right there, the same way, a different way. Maybe we need different systems. I don't know. Um, but I think that's a really important discussion crux thing going on. Yeah, I'm thinking about the difference between um, looking at student work and seeing their knowledge that they're coming to, like what they're naming, where they're naming, what they are realizing, knowing, yeah. thinking, and then expecting that to come out in the same kind of structure, style as the next student. And to me, that's different things. One is looking at knowledge being shared through words and writing, and one's being expecting a certain text. Expecting it to look a certain kind of way. Expectations, yeah. You always make such excellent points, Rebecca. I'm also thinking about how um, no matter what we do in the classroom, ultimately it boils down to how we read student texts. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, having a diverse curriculum also means that we are not only teaching students diverse materials, we are also learning to read texts that look very different from the ones that we are socialized into. Mm -hmm. And that really overturns the whole notion of a standardized curriculum on mm -hmm. its head. Because you realize there cannot be any standardized assessment procedures, any standardized reading mechanisms. You just have to read each text in a different way, realizing that Rebecca's discourse may be different because she's drawing on a different tradition than Linda's discursive choices because she may be drawing on other choices and meshing discourses in ways that Rebecca may not be doing. And it really calls for us to read more deeply. Mm -hmm. and learn to live with our own uncertainties as readers, being able to deal with complexity, ambiguity, not knowing what the student is writing about, and that's challenging. It's not something that comes easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this other, there's another piece that we were looking at for this discussion, um, What I Learned from My International Students. A little more contemporary by Jessica mm -hmm. McAfee, McAfee um, December 2nd, 2015, um, and she just kind of gives some of her experiences about her you know, dealings with um, international students, and some of those exact things. She says, like, don't BS them. You're going to look like an idiot sometimes. It's okay to be vulnerable. Um, so that's a very interesting discussion, too, you know, kind of make, like, humanizing it almost in a way to let, let your students know that I'm working on this. It's something that I need help on, too. And then you can kind of create that sort of back and forth kind of experience, you know, um, and have them almost become teachers in a way. Um, so that's interesting as well. It is, and it goes back to notions of authority that I find extremely hard to navigate because uh, I grew up educated in a system where our teachers were not only teachers, they were heroes we worshipped. Fascinating. And I expected that my teachers would be heroes. And so suddenly being able to navigate my own uncertainties and the fact that I may come across as a complete idiot is hard for me to you know, like, grapple with. I want to come across as the smart person in the room, so how do you kind of work with that? That's mm -hmm. funny. I, I always play the fool in class. I'm always like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Like I say that all the time. Yeah. And so Even though I, do, I know I'm waiting for someone to like, show me the right way, right? Mm -hmm. To give, like, empower them in that way. Um, or maybe I'm just, maybe I am. Uh, I don't know. That's really fascinating. Well, I think there's that pressure. I remember I shared a piece of a text um, and in the beginning of the text, it was Scribner, Three Metaphors of Literacy, which mm -hmm. was, I think, in Love the 80s. Yeah. In the beginning, 
the writer is talking about how there's lots of people writing about this and it's still a big question mark mm-hmm. and all these different voices are in here saying what they think and we're not really getting any further and we're just complicating it more and I remember my students some of them responding saying it shouldn't be this hard <laughs> like why are all these people you know not able to get somewhere with this the dictionary has a definition of literacy <laughs> can we not just work with that and I think talking to them about you know how academics take up uh, concepts and how they think through them and why complexity might be better than a simplistic answer um, can help invite them into thinking it's okay for it to be complicated it's okay for it to be unclear that opens up gaps and ways for us to explore um, issues further and to inquire further it does and um, our students are used to getting answers and so they're very uh, good at seeking answers and finding that one answer But if we were to kind of create systems, ecologies in our classroom that foster working with wicked problems and not having simple answers, it can really change the way students deal with uncertainty. Like many of our students struggle when they read a piece of research and after 20 pages the writers say at this point of time the evidence is inconclusive. And they think, what was this 20 pages for? They spent five years working on this million dollar project Mm -hmm. and they didn't find a certain answer but that's what I want students to experience that you know you don't have clean black and white answers mm-hmm. at the end of every project being open to you know, like not finding anything is also part of the learning process mm-hmm. and what does that mean for us as we continue writing in the world you know in college and outside Absolutely. after um, and and keep coming up with questions that we have to make choices from so a um, couple more things we could do. I thought it'd be fun to turn to Twitter for a moment and just see some of the things that are happening there. Just a quick search for multilingualism, and I'll just read off a couple of things. We can discuss some of the stuff I found. And then the last thing we could talk about is specifically for our program, the university writing program, our learning outcomes for our students um, and how we might think about those in the context of cultural and linguistic diversity a little bit more intensely. So let's just see. Um, I just did a quick Twitter search for multilingualism mm-hmm. just to see what came up. And there's some cool things here. Um, there's a survey. The first thing that came up, the number it was retweeted 16 times. It's not a lot, but that's a lot for this search. Um, <laughs> if the survey, fill out a survey of multilingualism in classrooms. It's available in 23 languages, and it'll be open until September 26th. So if you want to check out that survey, go look at at EU Erasmus Plus on Twitter, and you can check out that, that survey. Um, I also found a few other interesting things on this search. One of them was by uh, at IB Organization, um, and they tweeted out an interesting article on multilingual, multilingualism uh, via at mind, MindShiftKQED, um, hashtag schools. do you agree? And the article is entitled, Why Multilingual People Have Healthier, More Engaged Brains. Educators often focus on the language skills students who are still learning English lack, but bilingualism is a huge neuro-strength. So that sounds like an interesting thing to look at. Um, there's an international conference on multilingualism and third language acquisition um, in Vienna on September. Well, that was on September 1st through the 3rd, so you can check out the <laughs> aftermath of the conference um, in Vienna on multiculturalism. Um, and, yeah, I'm going to see if there's any tweets. Let's see. Let's do a first year writing, UNCC, us. What's our Twitter account? Is it UWP? Is it UWP? Cool. UWP, UNCC. And as you're searching this, um, I must say that I remember reading a piece that learning a new language can stave off 
Alzheimer's and other brain diseases so that um, as people get older they should try to learn a new language just to keep those brain cells active and healthy. Nice. Does that count for learning how to use emojis? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yes. Yes. Fascinating. And the, in, in fact, as a quick side note on that, Apple just unveiled their new phone yesterday and the new operating system is coming out in a few days, the iOS 10. I've been playing with it in the beta versions for a couple of weeks now. And they have this thing in there now where when you type a word into text messaging, it pr prompts you with the emoji version of that word. Well, that's awesome. So you can click it. So it's like they're literally one for one. Like you type in clap and you get the hands. You type in whatever awesome. and it gives you the emoji icon. You just push, the, push it and it puts it in there instead of the word. Wow. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when you can type something in Bengali and the emoji would come up. <laughs> it might do that. They might have that in there. I don't know. But apparently I heard um, that um, the new Apple keyboard allows people to write in Spanglish. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, that is. Like a, a, a physical keyboard? Or maybe the iPhone. The, the digital keyboard. Yeah, okay. the digital keyboard. Yeah. Interesting. So we got we, uh, a shout out to at Meg Rand. 20 hours ago, she tweeted out that awesome article that we started the show with about um, our new courses. And uh, at Bert Ray, uh, about yesterday, tweeted out this really interesting literacy narrative project uh, about how students learn. It looks like a visual graphic drawing that one of his students did. So uh, those are two top tweets that are on there right now um, that are interesting and relevant. That's just a fun, that's a fun little segment of the podcast where we look at Twitter for fun. I love that. For fun. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's all fun. Um, and writing is happening there as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. So much. So much. Um, that's a whole other can of worms to talk about is how social media is kind of almost, in, maybe it is, that's a question, is social media somewhat leveling the playing field mm -hmm. with, with linguistic diversity when it comes to writing? Like, yeah, that's really so. interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And it's also, gap, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, no, bridging the gap kind of thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a neat idea. That'd be an interesting inquiry project. Absolutely. I was talking to Kat this morning and she was talking about how... Um, one of her goals in the writing classroom is to help writers see themselves as writers. So when students come in, they just see mm -hmm. them, themselves as, oh, I'm not a writer, I'm a bad writer, but kind of move away from this, I'm, I don't write well, to I'm a writer and I can do Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and create a fan following there so they have a heightened sense of audience and they can do interesting things there as well just to see writing in broader ways. Absolutely. Um, we can wrap it up with a quick discussion. On, I mean, it's probably not... Quick discussion is probably not a good format for this, but a discussion around some of our learning outcomes for our, you know, program and how, you know, are we are we addressing any of these issues in our learning outcomes? Do our learning outcomes speak to to just that sort of monolingual point of view, or do we have room in there to expand on linguistic diversity? And of course, the five learning outcomes: critical reading, critical reflection, process of composition, knowledge of conventions, and rhetorical knowledge. You know, I've got those tattooed on on the top of my arm, so. Um, <laughs> that was another joke. I, I giggled. Okay. That was a low one. It was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons we formulated this ad hoc committee. Don't you think to kind of address some of these? We do, and for those that don't know, we have an ad hoc committee for the ELL um, project idea. And I think we recognize that um, these are things that have to be looked at intentionally again. I mean, I... I think uh, I, I think we are, we're, we're trying to work on. I know we talked, for example, in the meeting about trying to target studios that would address some of these issues. But it's um, so that's you know that's what I think was one of the purposes with the committee was to try to look at these. But I think we're sort of in the midst of figuring out how to do that. 
spot on. I mean, one of the things that we realized is that even though on the surface this seems to be working, and this was actually a minor re revision of the WPA outcome statement, our curriculum is far richer and the learning outcomes need to be changed. There's no room here for translingual, transcultural competence, and that's something that's become extremely important. Um, so I'm taking this class on design thinking, as you've mentioned before, Justin, and one of the things we were talking about, and there's this business school professor who talked about how this is an age of multi-world thinking. And so we need to find new ways of helping students think about how to develop transcultural, translingual, transnational competencies and our learning outcomes needs to be revisited to make room for these elements more explicitly. And I think, you know, again, the teacher education piece and our own professional development, yeah. I mean, um, these are terms, you know, we're kind of throwing around and it's not so easy to always understand what they what they mean. I mean, I'm, I, I, as I said, seeing the transition of how we're kind of going in this direction, um, I have to relearn or rethink uh, what this looks like, what this means, and I think we can't just assume that faculty, you know, know what all this means and what it's supposed to look like. And so, um, I think the professional development's a big piece of this, also. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that I notice is it goes back to our assumptions of the past experiences our students have had with writing that they come into our classroom with. Um, during the second week of my course we talked about critical reflection and we did some different activities in terms of what are some actions you might take when you're critically reflecting and one of my international students said I had no idea what we were doing the entire time uh, we, we met afterwards and a lot of it was because she has never been the subject of her own writing um, she's always been given a topic and mm -hmm. used research and from there I kind of got a sense of what was her experience of school assignments and I used her language as much as I could to try to make sense of what we were doing. You know, what is critical reflection if we do think of it as research? What does that mean in terms of the subject? What does it mean in terms of how you gain information by research um, of yourself? Looking at what kinds of text, pulling what kinds of information from your texts. Um, and so part of it was, let me rethink maybe what their experiences have been. And also, I don't always get a chance to hear what their experiences have been. Um, with these subjects before we're talking about it, but her sharing it definitely led towards a richer understanding of what we were doing um, in those moments and a way of me articulating it better for her, um, for her to understand. What a fantastic moment because in many ways, uh, first year writing, the way we do it, can be a really disjointed, fragmented experience for many students, American domestic, international students because we're using language that's foreign to them. We're using practices that's foreign to them. Many of them come from you know, high-stakes assessment uh, environments, and they're used to doing timed exams. They're used to being told how many words, how many sources, mm -hmm. how to compose a paragraph. And so when we use new language, when we use new practices, it can be a harrowing, disorienting, disconnected experience. So how do we learn to use students' language mm -hmm. to speak back to them in a way that makes our curriculum accessible and transparent to them? And sometimes I wonder, and I'm not sure if this is even a reality, I wonder sometimes my international students when I'm teaching this class typically feel more comfortable saying, I did not understand something. Mm -hmm. My American students or domestic students do not say those things. But I can tell in their writing that there's times where they're not understanding either. Mm -hmm. And so 
what about that situation could maybe open up more instances of saying, we don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Can we talk about it more? Yeah. Um, this is outside of my experience or this language. You're trying to use it, but it's not connecting. Um, but again, we don't always get to hear when that's actually happening for students. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, this is something I would love to hear you guys' thoughts about, Justin and Linda, too. One of the things I've noticed is that oftentimes when an international student positions herself or himself in the classroom, they'll say, I'm confused. The American student will often say, this assignment is confusing. Mm-hmm. And have you noticed the same thing and what may be causing those very different ways of framing the fact that they don't understand a certain text or a certain activity? I've noticed it too. I've noticed it with dismissing readings versus saying this reading is hard mm-hmm. and I have to work really hard to get something from it. I'm not sure if it's uh, the way they conceptualize schooling mm-hmm. and teachers and what the teacher's responsible for or not or any of those things that could play into it. I'm wondering if that's that sense of home that you feel when you're working in your own culture and if I would see the same thing if there was an American mm-hmm. student who's studying in India or Australia mm-hmm. who might position herself or himself as an outsider and say, I'm confused, as opposed to the local who'd say, this text is confusing mm-hmm. and it's all the other person's mm-hmm. fault. So I'm ho- mm-hmm. wondering if these are like that comes from that sense of home and I yeah, know, I I'm yeah. wondered about that. It seems like a positioning of like, am I a novice or not? Mm-hmm. And if you can accept that you're a novice, then you can accept that Maybe there's something that's confusing for you Mm -hmm. and that you have some kind of role or catch-up that you need to do to be able to understand the text. But if you are already seeing yourself as an expert user of whatever that subject may be or just skilled at American education systems of writing or English classes or however they're conceiving the course, it might be less willing, they might be less willing to accept the novice Mm -hmm. aspect of it. I think these these are the this is the discussion that's going to move this whole thing forward, and I think this is fascinating, and um, I, I love everything that's been brought up here, and I think we're we're getting a little close to the time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to wrap it up if you guys are cool with that. Absolutely, right. yeah. awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you to Rebecca, to Linda, to Deba uh, for being here today to do this. It's amazing. Um, I thought this was a great discussion. Uh, all the resources and articles that we talked about, you can find links to those below if you just scroll down. Um, Hopefully we'll have another episode soon. In the meantime, thank you so much for being here, everyone. Thank Thank you, you, Justin. Yeah, no problem. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Perfect.